Let us pray. Lord God, may the gleams that flash across my mind be not mine but yours. And may they enlighten us in this day. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. The liturgy we're using today comes out of a 1990s wild goose worship group. It's a liturgy that we use once or twice a year, for it is beautiful, accessible, and lyrical. The entire liturgy is focused on the Lord's service, and we always begin the hymn when we use this liturgy. Begin with the hymn, Be Thou My Vision, for its lyricism matches that of the liturgy. We usually get several expressions of appreciation when we use this liturgy. But we hear this liturgy today on a Sunday that is neither lyrical nor beautiful. As we're concerned about escalating tension and rhetoric between our nation and North Korea, the potential for the use of nuclear weaponry, as well as domestic violence and death in a city that is close to the hearts of many in this congregation. Charlottesville is a place that has provided higher education and several degrees to many of us. It's provided memories of love found and lost, lost and found, of lifelong friendships formed in dorm rooms, Greek houses, and ROTC units. All college towns have their special mystique, Austin and Ann Arbor, Berkeley and Boulder, Chapel Hill and Columbus. But Charlottesville brings our nation's history, its divisions and its unity to within special sight and touch. Though I've lived in Virginia nearly 14 years, I'm embarrassed to say that I have not yet ventured to Charlottesville. Morgan and Tim Johnson were in worship last Sunday to say their goodbyes at Westminster, for they have moved to Charlottesville this week, seeking in their words a slower pace, a less pressured life. I hope Charlottesville finds the peace to provide that. I hope our nation does. I hope our world does. Our passage for today is not at first glance a peaceful passage. It is one of two snapshots the lectionary gives us this year of the life of Joseph, who is in many ways a peace-loving character. But what happens to Joseph in today's text will lead him to struggle for peace within himself and within his family for a good number of years. And his struggle will have implications for the people of Israel of whom he is an early representative character. A bit of background. Joseph is the 11th son of, 11th of 12 sons of Jacob the oldest of two sons that Jacob fathers with the wife he loves the most, Rachel. When Joseph's full brother Benjamin was born, their mother died in childbirth. Joseph was 13 years old. 
When Joseph was 17, his father gave him a prized possession, a coat of many colors, a coat with long sleeves, depending on how you translate it, but one of the best-known garments in all of biblical or secular literature. To add insult to his brother's injured pride, Joseph dreams that one day he will rule over them and he shares his dream with them. When our text opens in the middle of the story, the brothers are tending their father's flock in the field and Jacob sends Joseph to check on them and report back. Joseph never returns. For when the brothers see him coming, they haphazardly plot to throw him into a pit, to kill him, and tell their father that he has been devoured by a wild animal. They get as far as throwing Joseph into the pit, but one brother doesn't want blood on his hands and wants to rescue him, and another brother decides that they might as well get some money out of their deed. So they sell Joseph to Midianites or Islamites. It's hard to tell, who take Joseph to Egypt and sell him to Potiphar, who is a high official in the Egyptian court. It is through Joseph that the people of Israel actually enter Egypt as slaves, a condition in which they will spend 400 years before Moses leads them to freedom in the book of Exodus. Now this text becomes its darkest when we pay attention to verses 23 and 24. I ask you to listen to these verses. I am going to read them slowly. And I ask you to open yourselves to the pain and the evil they narrate. And just know that towards the end of the sermon, we'll move toward healing. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the long robe with sleeves that he wore. And they took him and they threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. And then they sat down to eat. A 17-year-old boy wearing a cherished garment from his father stripped of that garment, bodily taken and thrown into a pit, empty even of water. Those who place hands on him are his older half-brothers. It is Cain and Abel all over again. Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau. Our Our propensity for violence to one another never ends. Suicide bombers calling out in the name of God. Elected officials gunned down on a baseball field. 
cars driven into crowds of protesters, counter-protesters, bystanders, people injured, people killed, police helicopter down with death, shouts of torchbearers, Jews will not replace us. You will not replace us. Our propensity for evil never ends. And then the brothers sit down to eat. Ice in their veins. All this happens when Joseph is 17 years old. He is old enough to know what is going on, old enough to put up a fight, but not old enough as if age matters to escape the physical, emotional, sexual scarring for life. If research and chronology are accurate over the course of nine years, Joseph, though enslaved, rises in the court of Potiphar. Along the way, Potiphar's wife takes a liking to Joseph. He's only 26 years old. He is strong. He, has attract, he is attractive. And she has power over him. But in the name of loyalty, both to Potiphar and to God, Joseph rebuffs her. She in turn takes hold of his garment, accuses him of accosting her, and he flees the palace, his torn garment left behind in her hand. She uses the torn garment to frame him and imprison him. He is once again confined, garmentless. Now, because of Joseph's power to interpret dreams, Pharaoh, the Egyptian ruler, consults Joseph about Pharaoh's own dreams, which Joseph interprets accurately as warning of an upcoming famine. Pharaoh puts Joseph in charge of planning for such disaster. Quote, I have set you over all of the land of Egypt, Pharaoh says, all of the land of Egypt. Joseph has just turned 30. For seven years of plenty, Joseph devises a way for the Egyptians to store food, ways that they implement and follow. When famine comes after the seven years, the people of Egypt have plenty. The whole world, in fact, fact, comes to Egypt for surplus food. Among those who come, ironically, are Joseph's brothers who do not recognize him until he chooses to reveal himself to them. I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold 
into Egypt. At that point, reconciliation begins and we get to the sign over here, the end of the story. Joseph is now 39 years old. It's been 22 years since his brothers threw him into the pit. Following their reconciliation, which begins now, Joseph will enjoy a relationship with his father, whom he hasn't seen for 22 years, for the next 16 years of his life until Jacob dies. And Joseph himself will live to be 110. His life ends in peace. So how did Joseph handle the abuse he suffered? The grief he knew, the family fracture, which took so long to heal. What kept Joseph going all these years? Is there anything we can learn from the way Joseph conducted himself about the abuse he suffered that might speak to us? There are. Let's look briefly at three. The first and most obvious thing that Joseph does after he is attacked by his brothers is throw himself into work. As soon as the narrator tells us that Joseph was sold to Potiphar, the narrator describes Joseph's stunning success using phrases that describe a combination of worldly effort and divine blessing. The Lord was with Joseph, the narrator says. He became a successful man. His his master saw all that the Lord was good with him. The Lord caused all that Joseph did to prosper in his hands. Joseph interprets dreams, navigates court politics, devises a system for the entire nation to prepare for famine in time of plenty. Under Joseph's leadership, Egypt becomes the breadbasket of the world. What Joseph does reminds us that work and achievement can be a tremendous help in overcoming pain and loss. Work can get us out of bed in the morning and keep our mind off our sorrows. It can be a balm in Gilead to make the wounded whole, to heal the sin-sick soul. I know I have been there. Work at times has done that for me. But work can also be a seductive way of avoiding something we need to face. It can be a fire escape we use too early when remaining in the apartment and reaching for the fire extinguisher would put the fire out before it destroyed. A proverb sometimes associated with the Joseph story because of its allusion to the pit is Proverbs 25. It reads like this, Counsel in the heart is deep water, but a person of understanding, of wisdom, can draw it out. The truth, my friends, is this, only we in our deepest heart can decide when our work is providing healing and when we are using it to avoid and escape 
for Joseph, work appears to be healing. Second, even as Joseph works, he also acknowledges, frankly, that a terrible thing has happened to him. Joseph brings two sons into the world. He names the firstborn Manasseh, which means God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. He names the second one Ephraim, which means God has made me fruitful in the land of my misfortunes. Both names point to the future. God has made me forget. God has made me fruitful. But both names also acknowledge the past as well. Hardship, rupture within all, within his father's house, land of my misfortunes. It is a delicate balance, this remembering and forgetting, this looking forward and looking back. But it's a balance that Joseph seems to strike because he is willing to acknowledge that a terrible thing has happened to him. Third, when Joseph speaks about the pain of his past, he does so only when and where and to whom he chooses. American poet named Stephen Dunn has a poem entitled, A Secret Life. It reads in part, The secret life begins early, is kept alive by all that's unpopular in you. It becomes what you'd most protect if the government said you can protect one thing, all else is ours. When you write late at night, it's like a small fire in a clearing. It's what radiates and what can hurt if you get too close to it. It's why your silence is a kind of truth. Even when you speak to your best friend, the one who will never betray you, you always leave one thing out. A secret life is that important. Nowhere in the eight chapters that cover the 22 years of Joseph's estrangement from his family does Joseph refer directly to what has happened to him. He doesn't share his story with cellmates. He doesn't share his story with fellow slaves. He doesn't share his story with the local bartender. And he sure as heck ain't on Facebook. I'm biased and old-fashioned and hopeless. There is a sense in which concerning what his brothers did to Joseph, that Joseph has a secret life. Yet his silence about what happened to him in the pit, the palace, and the prison is a kind of truth. A truth that says that when Joseph tells his story, he will tell it by his own choice. And when at the sight of his brothers, Joseph is moved to speak, then speak he does. I am your brother, Joseph. 
whom you sold into Egypt. Joseph's speaking does not dwell on the specifics of the violence he has suffered. It is neither graphic nor pornographic. He only refers to having been sold into Egypt, not stripped of his garment or thrown into the pit. But his speaking gives voice to what has happened and his speaking is necessary for the healing and reconciliation that it sets in motion. An ancient writer has said, speech is the rope by which Joseph pulls himself out of the pit. Finally, these three factors lead, I believe, to the characteristic for which Joseph is most remembered, and that is his faith. In speaking to his brothers, Joseph says, even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good. It is the first time that Joseph mentions God. The statement Joseph makes, you intended harm, but God used it for good. He says often enough that we realize in reading his story this statement is true for him. It is true for his situation. It is true for the suffering that he experiences, the reconciliation he will come to know. But it is not a statement that can explain all suffering. There is a suffering and loss in which the hand of God appears nowhere present. A suffering and loss in which we would not want the hand of God to be present. Some losses are so destructive and painful, so unfair and cruel that we do not want to feel compelled to have to force them into a belief system that says God intends them for good. But when we are able to look at our own situation and say with Joseph, God used it for good. When we're able to say this because it's true for us, then our ability to say it speak it can lead to healing just as speaking it provided Joseph and all who has heard his story since with the hope for healing Amen